So overviews are necessary. Why? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Go back to the days where you actually needed to study a map before you went on a road trip. And if you're uh, young and you've never known life apart from GPS, I don't want to hear about it, young whippersnappers. <laughs> it's not going to look like a map when you're on the journey, right? It's not going to look like the map does when you're on the journey. But if you can simultaneously understand what you're seeing, the journey that you're on, with a map-like perspective, you're going to be able to navigate turning points. You're going to have a grasp on where you're at in the context of the overall journey, and you're going to have a confidence in the destination. So even though we're going to travel across the meat of Revelation over the next four weeks, it's helpful to zoom out first and take a map-like view of it, an overview. And by the way, I'm pretty sure that that map and road analogy plays out in the context of our lives of faith and the unfolding of history too. That's the kind of helpful, practical model this kind of literature engaging in this provides us with. Some of us found ourselves after chapter three of Revelation with a feeling like this epistle-like approach, letter-like approach is very familiar. Revelation isn't all that foreign. And then with chapter four, it seems like it's an entirely different letter. But the meat of Revelation serves to answer questions that the seven churches of Revelation would have had. Like, okay, how is the church supposed to endure? How will God's judgment play out over rebellious people? Because I'm not sure that I'm really seeing it playing out that way, God, from my life experience. Does God actually have a plan that will actually work in the world, in history? The meat of Revelation answers those key questions for the seven churches and for us. So eschatology, we can't get right to the pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial viewpoints if we don't first ensure that, that by the time we get to chapter 20, where most of the eschatological debate centers from, we have at least allowed the book to take us there. We don't just jump straight there, open up to Revelation 20. We allow the book of Revelation to get us there on its terms. So in chapters four through five, John recalls creatures and elders from all nations and all eras, all together worshiping. Holy, holy, holy. In the very midst of the point in history that John encounters this vision, in the very midst of the great suffering of these seven churches, worship. Holy, 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 perfect, good, and just, and righteous is our God. Holy, 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 set apart at such a level to, that any degree of sin dishonors him. Any degree of sin offends him and is incompatible with his presence. Holy, holy, holy. None is like him. None is his equal. None can threaten or thwart him. You want to know what extreme worship looks like. You want to know what is going on right now as we speak and has been going on every breath of your entire life. Utter worship. Holy, holy, 
holy. This is the author of history, the author of salvation, the author of our stories, and the author of the scroll. So the scroll that we see in these chapters represents an intentional, definite plan that God authored. How are things going to pan out? How, even amidst the rebellion of the enemy and a fallen world, how is God's kingdom certainly going to prevail? All of that is accounted for in the scroll. But who can open the scroll? Who can make sense of God's kingdom plan and ensure that it's actually going to play out that way? Who is worthy to be entrusted in overseeing this great plan? Well, at that standard, no one. (laughs) Uh, Revelation chapter 5 verse 3 says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. (laughs) Well, that's anticlimactic. (laughs) But one of the elders said to me, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of Judah, yes. For those of us that only grew up with depictions of Jesus as as meek and mild, the Jesus that is only fit to pet lambs, we missed out a lot. Jesus is also a conqueror. Jesus isn't just a petter of lambs with soft flowing hair. He's a lion. He's a king. He's a blood-soaked warrior. Just wait for later chapters. And even then, even amidst Braveheart-like wishes, this hero's even better. The lion of Judah, the mighty king. Here we go. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, ultimately representing the 12 tribes of Israel. In Genesis 49, as Jacob is blessing his sons, he says to Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Judah stooped down. He crouched as a lion. Who dares rouse him? (laughs) Yeah, mighty warrior, lion-like power and superiority that can't be thwarted. That's Jesus who comes from this, this line. That's the conqueror, even over death, that is worthy to open up the scroll and ensure God's plan will play out. That's what John hears from one of the elders, probably an elder that's, that's very excited about what he gets to share and reveal to John, and I can relate to that elder. And in verse six, John hears the lion of Judah is worthy, and he turns and he sees in the vicinity of the mighty throne of God and the four living creatures, and in the very midst of the elders of all the people, he sees a great and marvelous lamb, (laughs) a bloodied, mortally wounded lamb. (laughs) I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. A bloody lamb? I thought this was the time for the conqueror. And for a world standing confused, Revelation says it is. This is the conqueror's time. This is the only one worthy because he has conquered even death. 
He stands now alive. This is the Passover lamb. Okay, there we go again with that key to understanding Revelation that we need to hear that not with our ears, but with Old Testament ears. Old Testament being a key to understanding Revelation, a people with a background rich in the great celebration of when God passed over those who had the blood of the lamb upon their doorpost and ushered in freedom from the oppression in Egypt. This is the true Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. Did he not prove that even death wasn't a threat to him? Even death was something he would utterly and completely conquer. I mean, who can come against a perfect, righteous, kind commander of armies of angels that even death can't really touch him? Who can stand against this one? That's the Jesus I want to be able to picture. And that's the Jesus I want our kids to be able to picture. And the lamb begins to open the scroll. The lamb is worthy and sufficient to see and ensure the plan of God's kingdom ultimately being played out throughout history. Okay, I've got to save at least some of this for next week because we're still going to cover all this content next week. Otherwise, this isn't really an overview. It's just an example of how little self-control I actually have. Remember, doing this overview is getting a map-like view of what we're going to travel into over the next four weeks. Now, over the next handful of chapters, chapters 6 through 16, John unveils several cycles of seven. Try to say that fast. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, each depicting God's justice and his kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. Altogether, the, the cycles of seven likely, meaning there is absolutely room for other interpretations, likely depict the same period of time between Jesus's resurrection and his second coming, a time in which we presently exist from three different perspectives. Now, me saying and emphasizing that word likely is also gonna be a developing hint a reveal of sorts in how I find I can best understand and interpret Revelation. Much more leaning symbolically than, than literally, and that'll in turn form my understanding of eschatology. Please hear me carefully. Other timberliners, other timberline pastors, and many other believers will disagree with me on this, and I absolutely get, respect, and honor that. Leave room for that and, and learn from that. Learn from how other people see and understand these things and keep learning. Who knows? If I were to teach this again in five years, maybe my perspective on some of this stuff has shifted. I hope it has. I hope I've learned. And I hope you do too. So as these cycles of seven unfold, John's vision is rich with many signs and symbols. Remember this as a quick little detour that's not in my notes here. Signs are never the thing. They're the thing that points to the thing. Signs are never the thing. When you see signs of God working, that's not it. That's a sign pointing to God. 
So John's uh, vision is rich with many signs and symbols. How, how does a great clash between the kingdom and the opposition play out? Beasts appear representing earthly powers and nations that, that set up power and demand allegiance, force and intoxicate people to follow them instead of the lamb. It's been this way ever since the garden. Ever since the beginning, mankind descends into being beast-like, becoming beast-like themselves as they oppose the rule of the king. As the seals represent mysterious points of the great clash between the enemy forces and the kingdom, and then trumpets represented the messages and the proclamation of coming judgment from the Lord to rebellious nations that don't repent. Then the bowls represent the justice, the wrath, and the judgment of God that will be poured out. All, don't miss or forget this, for the rest of our study time today and the rest of this entire study, all in such a way that calls and compels people to repent, to cease their rebellious ways and yield to the king and the kingdom. And many do repent, and many do not. Ultimately, the struggle will not be this indefinite stalemate, just chasing the tail of history. After long-suffering patience, after all kinds of efforts and calls to repentance throughout history using us, the church, there will come a definitive point when God consummately ends the threats of rebellion and completes a conclusive battle with rebellious nations to face justice, the battle of Armageddon. Like a lot of things in Revelation, there's debate over where exactly this physical location is, many holding to the idea that the Valley of Megiddo, a common location of historic battles for Israel, that's, that's what they're talking about, Armageddon. History is often repeating itself, often having overlapping occurrences in such a way that leads up to definitive events. Mankind's rebellion and the clashes between servants of the enemy and the kingdom has happened over and over and over again, oftentimes on the same battlefields, same geographical locations. Wars have been waged historically in the Valley of Megiddo, often considered to be the battlefield of Armageddon. Israel has faced invasion time and time again by enemies who are violently opposed to Yahweh. And as we said a few moments ago, history will not be stuck in this broken record, ever-repeating, ceaseless cycle. There will come a climax of the enemy's pride and the enemy's hatred, where nations, meaning collective groups of people that are defined by self-allegiance, They are compelled and lured by the forces of Satan. They'll they'll swell with pride and band together to form the greatest concentration of force possible. And for all who reject the work of Christ accomplished on the cross when, when he cried out on Good Friday, it is finished. For everyone who rejects that, Revelation 16, 17 says this. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. It is finished. 
Victory is proclaimed and assured before the battle even begins from the God that is above time, as we talked about in week one. He knows and he has the power to make real. There will come a definitive moment where he says, for all who reject the cry of the cross, it is finished. There will be a day. Revelation 16, 17, it is done. So be it. And the might of the Lord over all of his creation will ensure that unrepentant threats against his people, desecrations of his name and his authority will never again be able to corrupt his good creation. He will put an end to it. Never again allowed to corrupt and their defeat will be certain. This is what Revelation tells us. Now surveying over chapters 16 through 19, representations and heads of the enemy appear for their final judgment, the great prostitute and the ultimate beast, blasphemous, mocking, cursing identifications all around them, drunk with the blood of the martyrs, the saints of Jesus, chapter 17, verse six. While John momentarily marvels when he sees this, he stands in awe at the beast and the great prostitute. He is, an angel redirects him. Why do you marvel? They go the way of destruction, as do all the kings and nations that follow after that pattern. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and those that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. From that right there, I hear that overarching, ever-repeating main point of revelation once again, that God will be glorified and a call for his church to endure. Because make no mistake, Babylon will fall. That's chapter 18. Babylon represents the epic, ever-repeating opposition of nations to God's kingdom. Babylon represents Rome. Babylon represents Persia. Babylon represents the fall of earthly rebellious people that choose to identify themselves and force people to pledge ultimate allegiance to them by means of seductions of the flesh, forceful power, economic coercion, and the presumed power and the wealth of the world. This is the playground of the enemy. The ways of the world will be righteously judged and soundly defeated. It's nothing new to form attempts to self-identify and pledge ultimate allegiance apart from God. From Genesis 3 all the way to when Jesus replaces all the Babylons, it's futile. It's destructive, and one conclusive day, it will be dealt with. In our survey, we're venturing into chapter 19, getting a little closer to that chapter 20, where eschatology really finds its center. Chapter 19, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Conquering Jesus with blood that'd be his own, already shed, not blood from a battle. Battle hasn't happened yet. Blood shed intentionally on the cross. Yielding his weapon. What do you think his weapon of choice is? <laughs> the sword. Marked on his thigh like a tattoo, king of kings and lord of lords. You don't see this image on coloring pages in Timber Kids. <laughs> then chapter 20. And it's right here in, in this unveiling of the visions that we get to the great center of eschatology, the great questions of eschatology, the thousand years, the millennium. I'm gonna half quote and half paraphrase a walk through chapter 20, content first, and then analysis or interpretation second. An angel is seen seizing the dragon, that, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and binds him for a thousand years and throws him into the pit and shuts it and seals it over him so that he might not directly deceive the nations unrestrained any longer until the thousand-year period is ended. And after that, he must be released for a small period of time. Then the souls who had been martyred for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, special attention is given to them. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in their resurrection. They are raised back to life and reign with Christ for a thousand year period. And, and then the rest of the dead are raised in the final resurrection as the thousand years comes to an end. And when the thousand year period has ended, it is then that Satan will be released from his prison and given away to his own hatred, his own destruction, deceiving the nations, gathering them for battle. And they march and they surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were cast. And they will be tormented day and night forever. For they have created and chosen that eternal torment. Eternity in being an enemy of the Lord forever rejecting goodness and light. And then John sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, the book of life. Everyone is judged by what is written in the book, each according to how they lived their life. And even death and Hades, the grave, are thrown into the lake of fire. So too is anyone whose name is not found to be written in the book of life. That's chapter 20. That is utterly serious stuff, people. As self-chosen consequences of eternal defeat, rebels will one day be given away to what they want. Existence and eternity apart from God. For themselves. And I know serious questions come up as we just kind of hovered over the content of chapter 20, and we'll get back to all that in much more depth in week nine. And even after all this, 
eschatology particularly focuses in on chapter 20, zooms in on chapter 20, and asks, how are we supposed to understand the unfolding of events here? The thousand years, the millennium, there's a sort of sequence of events that John unveils for us. So how do we make sense of all that? Right there in chapter 20. And serious entrenchment develops right here. And like it too often does, it leads to people finding their understanding and then making claims that all other people are just unthinking idiots. They don't respect the Bible. They don't respect God's word. That's getting caught in the weeds, people. And for those of you on the other end of the spectrum going, wait, all this eschatological entrenchment that we've talked about, people that that get so caught up in their view and, and think everybody else is just an unthinking idiot, that just develops from a little part of one chapter in Revelation, primarily just part of one chapter? Yeah. And you can see why refusing to get caught in the weeds then is probably wise. It doesn't mean that eschatology isn't important. It just means that we have to engage it like John, the author, not me, and ultimately Jesus intends it, that God will be glorified. That's the point. His people must endure, keep the main thing the main thing, even in eschatology. I've got another great book recommendation for you. Some of you are going, now? (laughs) Seems kind of like a weird time for a book promotion. It's a book called Across the Spectrum. This book, Across the Spectrum, um, takes all kinds of theological issues and and presents the various sides and arguments. Here's the biblical foundation for this perspective, this view, and here's how they would respond to critiques and so on. In other words, it's a great resource for those of us that want to understand what does the other side What does another viewpoint really see? Because far too many of us, when it comes to issues, we find our side and we dig in and we entrench ourselves so deep that we think the other side isn't even part of the faith. Unthinking idiots. This book at least reminds us, hey, maybe people on the other side have actually read their Bibles. They have actually thought through stuff. And maybe you want to see and learn how do they see things. That's why this is a great resource, uh, including explaining many different sides of the eschatological views. If you want to know how does the other side see things, it's a great resource. So what are the eschatological perspectives? What are the three camps of eschatology? You start with the premillennial view. Could be summarized as, raptured before the rain. There's a post-millennial view, working toward and waiting for a coming reign of peace. And then there's an amillennial view, the symbolic thousand-year conquest of Satan. All three are legit. They can't all three possibly be right because they see things differently. And I'm not even 100% sure where I stand in sorting out all the details here. So today I'm going to present them rather than argue for them and defend them. And I'm going to be okay with some ambiguity in right versus wrong. Now, we are going to go a little bit deeper when we study this particular chapter in week nine. 
And while I may even then lean towards a certain perspective, one of these camps in particular, that's just because it's how it seems to make sense to me now. And even then, it's a fluid thing, open to change, open to learn. The premillennial view. A literal thousand-year reign of peace is coming in the future and will not begin until Jesus physically returns and, and takes his church out of the world. An act called the rapture, the taking up or the, the snatching, if you want to be aggressive. <laughs> the church is taken up before the tribulation, the thousand-year period, the millennium, hence the term pre-millennial. The rapture occurs pre-tribulation, pre-all of that trial. For the premillennial view, reading Revelation 20 is a clear succession of events. And God has not given up on the earth. He will win it back. He will bind Satan and then he will have his church reign over it all from above. Seeing as how things are appearing to get worse and worse and worse in our world until his kingdom reign, our promise, our hope is that the Lord will return soon and usher in this thousand-year reign. That's the premillennial view. The postmillennial view, Jesus will judge mankind after he reigns on earth through the church on earth for a duration of the millennium, thousand years. In some post-millennial perspective, Satan is in principle already bound, and Christ is in principle already enthroned. So we are already in this representative thousand-year reign. The culmination of this age will be the successful Christianization of the entire world before we can expect the Lord to return finally and usher in the never-ending reign of his kingdom. The church being present on earth through that thousand years. That's the post-millennial view. They are raptured, taken up after the thousand years, the millennium. And then the amillennial view or amillennial view. Revelation is symbolic, so why be so rigidly sequential and literal now? Once the symbols in chapter 20, just like the rest of the book, can be seen for what they are, eschatology is actually very simple. The consistent depiction of the end times is one multifaceted, interconnected event, including Jesus' return and his victory and the resurrection of the dead and final judgment. It's seeing it like a prism from different angles. Please hear this. All three sides, all three, would, should agree that the point is that Jesus will return as king he will deal with opposition, evil, once and for all, and he will vindicate his people. All three would agree that's the point. Okay, that's the general overview of eschatology. And if, if you want more, if that was just going across the surface too much, then you should be glad that we have four weeks to actually now go deeper in this content more directly. So now for an overview of apocalyptic literature. Don't worry, it's not nearly as complex or going to take as long. Apocalypse, it comes from the Greek apocalypsis, a type of Jewish literature along the lines of other books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. 
please, please, please don't ever read the Song of Solomon like it's a literal book on love. Or you're going to find yourself talking about your lover's stomach as if it's a heap of wheat. I wouldn't recommend it. That's because Song of Solomon is a song. It's poetry. It's image-rich, intended to excite emotions that mere statements of facts simply can't access. Similarly, apocalyptic literature has a distinct purpose, to activate symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. I'm going to say that again. Apocalyptic literature has a distinct purpose to activate symbolic visions that reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. I want to take a few of those terms apart in a little bit more depth. For instance, symbolic visions. (laughs) As we saw the slain, bloodied lamb opening the scroll... You could try to envision that literally, like how did the bloody hooves get, get into that scroll and open it where no one else can? You could, you could view it that way. Or you could view it symbolically, like the one who was slain and will forever be recognized that his blood shed was his victory, and he stands and he is the only one worthy to see history to its culmination. You decide. Apocalyptic literature contains symbolic visions. Revealing a heavenly perspective on history. You and I are helplessly culture bound. (laughs) We are inescapably time bound. We see things and understand things through the environment in which we live. We're biased. We we emphasize certain things we like and we de-emphasize or even ignore things that, that make us uncomfortable. But Revelation reminds us, apocalyptic literature reminds us that there is blessing in trying to see beyond just our frame of reference, God's view. In light of the final outcome, apocalyptic literature activates and enhances worship. If this style of literature is richly representative, more like artistic expression than it is a historical account or narrative, then it's kind of the only way that we're going to get to access deeper experience like God invites us into. Why is it that we find ourselves so emotional over songs or art or movies as opposed to a mere statement of facts? I don't know that I have a clear answer for that, but I do know that I can relate to that. Now, I'm going to share something a little embarrassing, but it's always good for a pastor from time to time to share self-effacing humor. So this is a gift. I can't recall the last time I cried on stage. I don't even really get it. I've had some deeply powerful emotions in in sermons and in in announcements or or developments that, that... I've come into weekends with all kinds of emotions and and recalling sorrows of others or, or my own. And I can definitely get a good lump in my throat from time to time. But I cannot recall the last time that I openly wept in emotion on stage. But I basically wept like a baby at the end of Top Gun Maverick. I don't get it. 
Like if I was an actor or something and could cry on will, I'd, I'd try to work on that a little bit. I'd try to say like, hey, little less in, in the fiction, a little bit more when you're preaching. And, and I wish I could control it like that and not bawling over a fictional sense of victory. It, it is a good, well done fictional <laughs> sense of victory. I will say that. There's something about artistic, representational expressions that, that cuts deep. That's what apocalyptic literature is all about. And this is directly from the God that understands that. He made us that way. He gives us the arts because he knows that's gonna activate something way deeper than you're normally going to encounter. The apocalypsis of Revelation is that. It's prophecy. It's God's word as spoken through a prophet to his people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. And by calling this prophecy, John is saying that it stands in the tradition of all the rest of Old Testament prophecy, sort of as a culminating sequel for readers of the Old Testament with an Old Testament mind, bringing all of that prophecy to its final and ultimate conclusion, letting us see that with all kinds of emotion and wonder and awe. That is apocalyptic literature. Told you it'd be shorter than our review of eschatology. Okay, so a map-like overview of eschatology and apocalyptic literature. Now, you know what the risk of doing an overview like this is? People can go, okay, now I think I see it. So why take the next four weeks and, and go over all this in depth? <laughs> because as we said in the very beginning, a map-like perspective of a journey, it's good. It's necessary. But it's nothing like actually taking the adventure. That's where we're headed in the meat of Revelation. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving for ministry and service information and much more, visit our website at timberlinechurch.org. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.